You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm Sarah New. I'm the executive director of uh, our church for New York City. Thank you for tuning in wherever you're coming from. All pronouns are okay with me. And today, as you can probably tell from the slide, we are in the middle. That was my sibling walking past um, of our powers and principality series, um, which is essentially our, our series to talk about systemic racism and the ways in which interlocking oppressions operate. And some of you might be curious, like, why do we choose the phrase powers and principalities, especially if it didn't grow up charismatic, it might be a bit of like, what is that phrase even? So the phrase comes from Ephesians 6. I'm going to quote it in the King James Version, uh, which has like the most robust language, I think. And it says, um, okay, there you go, it is. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of their might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness wickedness in high places. So probably out of all the words in that verse, the word that is the least familiar is the word principalities. Um, and it's a bit, bit unclear what it means, but it most likely refers to the domain and the area that a prince would rule over. And so in the Bible, Satan or the devil is pretty commonly referred to as a prince of this world. Um, or the prince of this earth, what have you. And so most likely, and you know, the early Christians believed that for millennia before Jesus arrived, we were under the domain of Satan, the prince. And, but we were captive, but then Jesus offered his life as a ransom. So the devil let us go and Jesus was taken instead, but then Jesus like resurrected and overthrew the devil. And I was like, psych. And then, you know, everyone wins except the devil. And so this theory of atonement is called Christus Victor, uh, and actually is a popular theory of atonement for the first thousand years, before we even get to like sacrifice and pay the penalty for your sins type model. So that's all to say that I want to kind of caveat that, but also talk a little bit about the historical context uh, of this first, and that, you know, who really knows what historical context is. But um, I will note that this is written in the book of Ephesians, which is um, essentially a, a letter that Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. And Ephesus, at that point in time, is sort of second to Rome in terms of commerce and culture. And in fact, one of the biggest drivers um, of their economy was this huge temple dedicated to their patron deity, uh, Artemis. It was like the Greek goddess of like hunting and fertility, kind of like all-encompassing, wears many hats. And so Paul and his followers are traveling around the Mediterranean preaching the gospel, and this is what happens. You can scroll to X19 if you're interested in the verse itself. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. The way refers to essentially Christianity. That phrase, that name wasn't in vogue yet, um, which is kind of cool. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought a lot of business to the artisans. He gathered the artisans together and said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. And he talks about how Paul is preaching that God cannot be made by human hands, and then he elaborates on the implications of that. There is danger not only that this trade of ours 
will come into disrepute, but also that the great temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she'll be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. When the height, when they heard this, they were enraged and shouted, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. People rushed to the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. For about two hours, all of them shouted in unison, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. So this temple that Paul's friends, uh, Gaius and Aristarchus, I tried to get Spira to like give me the Greek pronunciation, apologies Spira, um, were dragged into this temple that could seat potentially 24,000 people. So just imagine these two poor fellas surrounded by 24,000 people chanting essentially their version of make Ephesus great again. Now if I were them, I'd be like, why did I become friends with Paul? But in any case, finally the town clerk intervenes and calms everyone down and says, you know, Let's follow due process, the courts are open, uh, people go home. And so when I think Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, um, Paul is saying, you know, church, I'm, you're struggling right now, you're really wrestling with a lot right now, but what you're really wrestling with is not this mob that almost tried to kill you, nor is it even the followers of, Ephes of Artemis, nor is it even this Demetrius dude. Your struggle is with the power of greed against an entrenched, wicked system of power and wealth that wants zero disruption. So because it could be Demetrius today, maybe be Dimitri tomorrow, the point is not to look at the people but at the power structure and how it sets up certain people to profit and benefit from oppression and conflict. So some people call this structure, you know, systemic oppression, some people call it demonic, you know, I think it's both. Um, so then the question is, what does it mean for us to engage in spiritual struggle? Or, you know, which is a phrase I slightly prefer to spiritual warfare because it's a bit tricky when spiritual metaphors uh, borrow from violence, but in any case, I appreciate both. So to, if I were to define it, I would say to engage in spiritual struggle or warfare is to look beneath the surface and understand where the real conflict is. I think this is also a really good framework for understanding racism. Because the truth is the stuff that kind of goes viral in the news, um, you know, like a, a CEO who dresses as a Mexican person for Halloween through Instagram in 2012 and gets canceled, or uh, a police officer shooting like an unarmed, defenseless black man. Um, these acts are, are clearly really bad, um, but they're ultimately individual acts. And so the question for us is, if we look beyond the flesh and blood of these individuals, and ask ourselves, what is the power and principality behind them? Uh, yeah, let's ask ourselves, what is the power and principality behind them? So, I mean, you can and you can name a bunch of things, right? You can name, um, you know, slavery, capitalism, American imperialism, wealth inequality, military-industrial complex. But I think uh, a thing that doesn't quite get named on that list as to the powers and principalities behind this individual acts of racism uh, is the church. So I'm going to explain a little bit why I think the church should be named as a power and principality behind racism. But today I'm going to do a bit of history. So I'm going to list off some things and I want you to guess who I'm referring to. So in the Middle Ages, around 500-1500 CE, this group of people were disproportionately uh, imprisoned and killed. So for instance, in 1255 in England, a young boy was found dead near a home of people uh, a home of someone who belongs to this group of people. 
And as a result, the King of England orders 91 people to be in prison and 18 were dragged through the streets and then executed. At one point, 10 to 15 percent of this population, a group of people, were put to death for suspicion of a crime committed in a single incident. Any guesses who they were? Another clue. They were believed by Christian Europeans to have bestial characteristics, to have horns and tails like the devil, whose bodies gave off a particular stench. They were believed to collaborate with the devil and murder children. Um, and this, this clue should be quite obvious by now. This group of people were barred from public office, from eating with Christians, from marrying Christians, from walking publicly in city streets um, during Holy Week. Olivia, you're totally right in your guess. Christians were forbidden from living among them. At some point in 13th century England, for instance, this group of people are forced to only live in certain cities where the state or the crown could track all their economic activity and they could not change residences without official permission. So they're eff effectively residentially segregated. And then around 13, 1400s, to top things off, they're just expelled en masse from England and Spain and so on. So as people have guessed, I'm referring to uh, Jewish people. And by the way, most of what I, the history I'm drawing from comes from this text, The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages by Professor Geraldine Hung, who's great. So I, I go into all this history because uh, it's very clear our history as Christians. Um, and it's really important not just because anti-Semitism still exists today, but also because the treatment of Jews is arguably the first time that race was created. It was the first time a group of people were classified and essentialized via certain bodily features and heavily regulated and tracked by the state. Prior to that, it was not that, you know, everyone's skin color and features were the same. Um, but, every, you know, uh, this quote by Geraldine Hang kind of explains it quite well. As you can see, this description of the Jews as people with, like, qualities of the devil, that Jewish men have monthly menstruate, basically, that Jews are a lower order of creatures, goes far beyond Jews have a different religion. Um, it, it's, it's Jews are different from other humans. They are closer to animals. They are a different species. Um, so and, and just to really be, super, be even more clear about this, it, like I said, it's not that people... I thought everyone looked the same, is that how people were identified was not necessarily, before this point, by their physical characteristics. It might be by your place of origin or by your religion. And so if we think about racism as a demonic power and principality whose origins, you know, we're trying to pinpoint, I think a good place to start would be place and time in which Christians literally demonize Jews. And I just want to make a caveat that Stereotyping Jews via physical characteristics is like kind of bad for many reasons, but a large reason is that it ignores the existence of African Jews, Middle Eastern Jews, Indian Jews, all of who exist around the same time. But in any case, I detail all of this because it really, uh, like I said, not only does anti-Semitism exist today, but it really paves the way for the church's treatment of Africans and native peoples a few centuries later. So you might be thinking to yourself, like, where does this demonization of Jews come from theologically and scripturally? You know, we always say all the time, Jesus was Jewish, the early church was so Jewish, and one of the most famous verses comes from Galatians 3. So it goes, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And this egalitarian impulse that we see in this verse is absolutely true, absolutely resonant in many parts of our scripture and tradition. The truth is I can point out many verses in scripture that point to clear and unequal distinctions between men and women, between masters and slaves, 
and also between Christians and Jews. And probably the most the famous verse for anti-Jewish sentiment um, is in Matthew 27, 24, 25, when Jesus is tried before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, is about to be hung on the cross. Here's the quote. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but that instead a riot was breaking out, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. You bear the responsibility. All the people answered, his blood be on us and our children. So the people here, you know, was taken historically to mean Jewish people, and thus the Jews would always then and forever carry the blood responsibility for Jesus' death on their hands for their children and their children's children in perpetuity. So if Satan is responsible for Jesus' death and Jews are responsible for Jesus' death, then it's logical, obviously, that both parties would be collaborating with one another. So that's the that's the that's the conflation. And as my friend Daniel Camacho uh, has said to me, he was actually supposed to preach this sermon, but uh, I took over. He had something else going on. Um, we have to be honest about the fact that there are contradicting and multiple voices and threads in Christianity. Some voices calling us to freedom and equality, and some voices moving us in the opposite direction. And initially, this can feel like real anxiety producing, like how do I know which one is true? How do I know, you know what to follow? But I think if we just accept that, it's actually really freeing because it makes it clear that we have a choice about which version of Christianity we want to promote and follow. And I trust that all uh, of us want to follow the freedom and equality uh, version of Christianity. But I think if we want to do so, the first step in doing so is recognizing that the church historically has made some really opposite decisions. So this anti-Jewish attitude and theology I referenced earlier is certainly kind of in the water and in the air throughout the Middle Ages, but really starts peaking after the 1200s. Um, so in Spain, for instance, discrimination against Spanish Jews really gets to a really, really high point. In 1391, this fanatical priest leads a mass uh, conversion campaign uh, where the slogan is convert or die leading to about a third or half of Spanish Jews converting. It's the greatest mass conversion in church history. You know, the Holy Spirit was really moving, uh, not really, just swords. Um, and these Jewish converts are not labeled, however, as Christians, nor are they labeled as Jews. They're labeled a particular term in Spanish, conversos, or converts. And so I'm going to uh, paraphrase an article from Jeffrey Gorski, and uh, Tiffany will post a link to the article so you can read more. But essentially, some of these converses are very successful and wealthy and close to the king for a variety of reasons I don't get into. You have to look into the history of usury and Judaism and, and anti-Semitism, but, um, but they essentially become political scapegoats. So here's an example. In 1449, this local rebellion forms in Toledo, Spain, and the wealth of uh, conversos were seized and looted. But in order to justify the looting, the rebellion's leaders start rumors that the conversos were secretly practicing Judaism and working against the church. Um, the, one of them, in fact, forms an inquisition to investigate and punish conversos. And six months later, the first set of explicitly kind of racially based laws are formed, barring conversos from holding private and public office and from receiving land from the church. So I really think you see the same pattern and work that we saw in Ephesus, where you have this kind of mob that is like riled up trying to, you know, persecute this group of people, maybe not even sure why they're persecuting this group of people, but what's really behind it 
in the case of Ephesus, was a system of power and money. I think a lot of that applies true today, um, not today, but in, in the case of when we look at Spain and many other contexts where there's this mob that's caught up in this anti-Jewish frenzy and racism. But if we were to look beyond flesh and blood and pinpoint the power and principality behind it, um, it's about you know power and money. It's about rich Christians who resent the wealth the conversos, and it's about poor Christians whose lives are terrible and want somebody to blame. So I think the dynamics we see in Ephesus are a really good microcosm to see how race interplays with class and money, and how racism often serves as a great theological justification for economic gain. In any case, these laws basically go viral in Spain, uh, not in a good way, and soon conversos are banned from living, American towns, they're banned from admit, being admitted to universities, from church offices, and these are Christians, right? These are converted Christians. And these laws are so significant because it essentially meant that if you are Jewish or were Jewish of Jewish ancestry, you cannot change or convert out of it through your behavior. You're permanently and forever categorized as such. Judaism is definitely no longer just a religion, it is a race. It's something inherited and passed on by blood that you cannot escape. And this is really significant because, as I mentioned, Jews are blamed for the death of Christ. And here's a quote by Jeffrey Gorski um, to kind of explain that the crime of which of those of Jewish lineage were guilty was deicide, uh, killing, killing of God. The alleged Jewish role in killing Christ was a kind of original sin, inherited by Jews and passed down in the blood. Because the act superseded the rite of baptism, baptism could not purge converses of this crime. And there's lots of like extra history stuff I don't try to get into. Thank you everyone for posting comments of further things to read. But I just want to point out here that see some of the similarities between the invented concept of inheriting Jewish blood responsibility in perpetuity and also how the Americans in the 1700s invented the concept of inheritable slavery um, in which for the first time in Western history, children inherit the legal status of their mother. So that means you're, if you're born to a slave, enslaved mother, you're a slave forever, basically. So not only do we see theological and legal innovations, so to speak, we also see around this time some medical and scientific innovations. The idea of something called blood purity becomes really popular. And this is sort of the loose, loose tie into the meet and greet question. Um, so here's just another quote from uh, Jeffrey Gorski. The phrase limpieza, or purity of blood, came into common use in the 16th century. The phrase is understood literally, not metaphorically. Medical belief held that blood was the principle of four humors in the body, because it circulated the other humors. Blood therefore played an essential role in establishing a person's character. So if, if it's super clear, your blood makes defines your character, so the kind of blood you have influences what character you have. So what counts as impure or unclean blood? This context, Jewish blood. It's to the point where in 1552, the Spanish crown requires that immigrants to America must furnish proof of limpieza, or clean blood. So fast forward, Spain and Portugal entering the slave trade, or colonizing the Americas and Africa, the concept of limpieza begins to expand. And it begins to refer not just to an absence of Jewish blood, but also of black blood. So under Spanish rule, people with black blood, quote unquote, are barred from civic and religious office, from universities, from some kinds of commercial endeavor. By the time slaves are introduced in Virginia and America, for instance, Spanish and Portuguese colonists held a quarter of a million black slaves already, which undoubtedly influenced the ways in which the British colonists uh, treated um, Africans. And I think 
By now, I, I don't need to detail the ways in which white Americans became so fearful of even having one drop of black blood, which would you know, pollute or stain their family lineage, so fearful of miscegenation, of intermarriage. And I think this fear does not come from nowhere. It, it has some clear roots, I believe, in the century-old practice of limpieza. Even the English word race, as it's meant today, some anthropologists believe was adopted from Spanish, where it was used to refer to uh, people of Jewish descent. So you can see this demonic power and principality of anti-Judaism begins to mutate and it really takes on a life of its own as an anti-black power and principality, which, to be clear, has a very different logic from anti-Semitism, but I think has some clear antecedents in the Christian treatment of Jews. So just to kind of really bring them both together, here's a quote uh, from Fray Prudencio de Sandoval, a Benedictine monk and Spanish historian in the 1600s. Who can deny that in the descendants of Jews, there persists and endures the evil inclination of their ancient ingratitude and lack of understanding, just as in the Negroes there persists the inseparability of their blackness. For if the latter should unite themselves a thousand times with white women, the children are born of the dark color of the father. Similarly, it is not enough for the Jew to be three parts aristocrat or old Christian, but one Jewish ancestor alone defiles and corrupts him. So to theologically justify though this coming this conflation um, of this anti-blackness, because it's also a bit hard to find uh, justification of that in scripture, um, unlike anti-Judaism, Christians start pointing to the biblical story of the curse of Ham. And thank you, Angela, for reminding me about the story. Uh, it was good to work in. So Ham is one of the three sons of Noah. Uh, and he does something kind of bad to his father. It sort of ranges from like, being a bit naughty to like sexual assault. It's a bit vague. But the point is, after this, uh, Noah curses Ham and says, you shall be a servant unto servants. And Ham's descendants essentially will serve the descendants of his brothers. And since in the narrative of scripture, all humans descend from Noah, um, white Europeans basically said, okay, so slavery of Africans is justified because there are the descendants of Ham and we are the descendants of the other two brothers, or one of the two brothers. And so what we're doing is God ordained from the very beginning. So you see this myth of inheritable original sin play out in really specific and detrimental ways for Jews and for Africans. And, you know, we'll take a different sermon to talk into like the different trajectories that European Jews and Africans have taken in this country. You know, obviously one group has assimilated into whiteness. But I, and I do want to acknowledge, though, that these histories are particularly detrimental for black Jews who experience a kind of double oppression and are largely rendered invisible in the conversation on anti-Semitism. So thanks for bearing me if I, as I kind of did a bit of a history dump. Um, but question is, why did I focus so much on the church's historical treatment of Jews and some of its scriptural bases? And I think the reason why I wanted to really do this kind of detailed historical reckoning is because if we as Christians want to you know, abolish white supremacy and fight uh, anti-black racism, I think we have to examine our own house first. We have to recognize that wherever white supremacy, slavery, and colonialism has operated, the church has, by and large, blessed it, enabled it, participated in it, or set the stage for it, this treatment of Jews, Africans, Native Americans, and so on. So if we are trying to, as Paul asks us to, look beyond flesh and blood and examine the powers and principalities at play in racism, we have to acknowledge that Christians have been complicit in those powers and principalities that we, you know, today as progressive Christians, so to speak, are struggling against. We have to repent, 
who have to, you know, make reparations, as Jonathan said once. If not, our actions for justice will ring a little bit false. And yes, of course, yes, white Christians do bear a bigger burden, uh, particularly maybe if you're Spanish. Just kidding, not really. But uh, the larger point I'm trying to make, though, is white supremacy is intertwined, I think, with Christian supremacy. And that is a power and principalities that we as Christians have to really grapple with. The good news, uh, and you know, we really believe there's always good news, is that the story of Christianity I've told is not the only story of our faith. Um, let's return to Galatians 3 and just read again. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So, uh, I'm not a biblical scholar, but it's my understanding that it's a common practice when there are verses in tension with one another for the interpreter, yourself or whoever in this case, to pick an anchor verse that serves as a lens to interpret all the other verses. So the question is, which verse will you choose to be your anchor verse, your sort of ride or die verse, your non-negotiable verse? There, you know, are versions of Christianity that are literally, you know, in some ways war with each other, it's a spiritual warfare. Which version of Christianity will we choose to live by? The empire version or the egalitarian version? Which power and principality will we follow? I think this is a choice we have to make today and every day. And may we always, always choose the way of peace and justice. I'll close this in prayer. God, we repent of all the ways in which we have, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Christ and the name of our church, have committed atrocities and genocides against uh, peoples of this earth and against so many peoples. Um, repent of the ways in which white supremacy is intermingled with Christian supremacy, um, is intermingled with so many other forms of oppression. God, we thank you that our scripture, our text, our tradition is at the very least honest about what has happened, um, that there's been accounts um, to make amends and make reparations. And I pray that ultimately um, we will find and would choose a thread in scripture that points us towards liberation, towards equality, that that is a thread we shall pull on, we shall tug upon, and we shall weave together a greater tapestry of justice and peace and liberation. I pray that your spirit will move in our hearts today and in the hearts of all humans around the world to move us in that direction. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.